Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Mayor Fred Eisenberger had a noisy reception when he woke up this morning as demonstrators were at his home. Is this acceptable? What will happen at the G20? Can Justin Trudeau free the two Canadian hostages held in China? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The agitators that showed up at the mayor's home at uh, 7 o'clock this morning and uh, banged on doors and left signs and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, As I tweeted, this is totally unacceptable. And um, I don't think uh, this is retrospective of the communities. I think this is more about extremism and a group of people similar to those that beat up Lock Street that are looking for any sort of issue that divides us, forgetting that people in the LGBT community work and live and play alongside of us every single day in this building, in City Hall, and other workplaces uh, around the city. So uh, for these people to pretend to speak for all of the community, I'm, I'm not sure they do. Um, and again, I, I, I think this is more to do with extremism and people looking for something to be divisive. What they are is anarchists because you don't show up to someone's home and start involving their neighbors by uh, invading their privacy and this sort of thing, not to mention the family. Uh, not the way to do it. Uh, City Hall forecourts, one thing. This is unacceptable and I would also venture to say it does nothing, nothing for the credibility of the voices of the people that are trying to get their message heard. All right, uh, Bill Kelly had the mayor on this morning. We're going to replay that entire interview for you because uh, we feel it is important. So here is Bill Kelly earlier on this morning talking to Mayor Fred about all of this. Mr. Mayor, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I wish it was under better circumstances. How are you and the family doing? Uh, you know, my, my uh, wife and neighbors are uh, very rattled, as you could, uh, could imagine. Uh, you know, being awakened at 7 o'clock in the morning with uh, people violently pounding on your door and uh, yelling, uh, yelling things and uh, making a lot of noise and racket and uh, playing music uh, on our property and other people's property is uh, very, uh, very upsetting. So they're rattled, and uh, I think it's very unfortunate, but, uh, you know, we live in crazy times. Uh, it's uh, but it's unacceptable. Uh, this is uh, this is crossing a line. If people want to protest, uh, you know they can uh, come to city hall or do what uh, do what they do in other places. But uh, going going to uh, you know the personal property of the mayor or anyone else, I think is uh, crossing a line. So I told the police to uh, to lay whatever charges the law allows. This obviously came as a surprise. But just judging from what you've described, and I, I, I read your tweet on this a couple of minutes ago, and that's why we wanted to get you on to talk about this, Mr. Mayor. Uh, this was this was organized. This was not just a, a random situation here. No, I think people actively have decided to uh, to take these actions. Uh, I, I understand that some of the same people that are in the picture were uh, the, the people that were at council the other night. Uh, we have uh, we have a video that uh, you know a brave neighbor across the street uh, took while these people were uh, were standing uh, on my property and doing whatever they were doing. Uh, they left a whole pile of signs on the uh, on the on the property, <clears throat> and we have some images of that. And yeah, it was very organized, very orchestrated, uh, and uh, and very unfortunate. Uh, it's certainly not the kind of message that's going to win them any uh, any favors. Uh, I don't know who they are. Uh, I don't, I don't know if part of the I mean they were yelling things about the mayor hates queers. 
Uh, I, I'm not going to label this in any way, shape, or form, or give them any uh, any platform. But uh, I will let the police deal with uh, you know them appropriately, whatever they're whatever they're able to do. Did you see this coming? I mean, there, there was some confrontation, no. as we talked about at the meeting the other day, and, and we've talked with some of the people on council and yourself, of course, about this. And we've talked with some of the people that were actually there uh, that particular night. Uh, I was under the impression, and maybe I was just being hopeful, uh, that, uh, that that was going to be the end of it. That was the apex of the, the confrontational aspect of this, and we could get down and start talking about things. But clearly, uh, uh, radical elements, I guess, are taking over here, and that's unfortunate, to say the least. Well, and, and you know, there... As I said the other day uh, to the media, that uh, you know the radical elements uh, are just love uh, the, the the scenario that we're in right now, where we've got uh, people accusing one another. Uh, you know that normally would be allies. Uh, you know I'm 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 an ally. I've been actively working with the uh, the queer trans community on a whole range of things. Uh, when Aiden Johnson was here, we worked together on advancing the cause, and uh, and and suddenly. Uh, the, the agitators have been able to uh, to, to turn us uh, one against the other, and uh, with you know without without a lot of help from others in terms of uh, tamping this down, and so I'm uh, I'm I'm committed to continuing to follow through with dialogue. Uh, the the only way to you know sort through these problems for those that don't want to agitate is to uh, sit down and have a conversation and, and uh, for us to collaboratively work towards stamping out this hate and this uh, this uh, level of agitation that's going on and uh, being able to stand against it collectively rather than fighting amongst them one another. So I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that happens. Uh, we'll let the police deal with uh, the, the radical, uh, you know, responses that we're seeing, uh, you know, at my house or in other places. Uh, I, I imagine, uh, you know, that I'm hearing today that uh, they're potentially targeting other, uh, other either counselors or properties. And, uh, you know, if they do, then I think the, uh, the police will be at the ready. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is, this, is, uh, this is totally unacceptable in our community. This is not a hate-filled community. Uh, there are some hate-filled people that make it look that way, but this is just not the case. Uh, there is broad acceptance for, uh, for the trans-queer LGBT community. There's broad acceptance of the, the Muslim and inclusion. Uh, and and let, me, let me get beyond acceptance. Let's say inclusion of all of the groups, uh, the minorities that are being attacked right now is part of a fundamental and functional part of, of our city. Hamilton is for everyone that lives here. There should be no discrimination, no hate, no, uh, no, uh, you know, antipath and, and no, no, no anger and angst and uh, directed at any of these groups to cause division. Uh, we've been working on, uh, you know, tamping all of these things down, but, Unfortunately, there are groups out there that uh, that want to agitate and uh, want to stir the pot and want to work against the uh, the established institutions in our community, and uh, this is the kind of level of mayhem that they're prepared to create. Was there any dialogue with the people that were doing this today? No, I didn't give them the satisfaction of uh, of uh, giving a dialogue because that's <clears throat> that's exactly what they would want. They would want a confrontation, and I'm not going to give it to them. Uh, so I, uh, we stayed, uh, we stayed put, uh, I took some pictures, uh, I did call the police, uh, the police did come after the, uh, it was 15 minutes long, so it, uh, it didn't take long for them to be there and be gone, but, uh, we have, uh, you know, a, you know, a significant amount of evidence and, uh, and the police are certainly going to follow up on that. And, uh, and certainly, uh, <clears throat> Warren, uh, other members of council that, uh, might be targets as well. Did uh, that's an interesting aspect of this, and a very troubling aspect of this too, though, Mr. Mayor. Did they make that threat when they were at, in, at, at your house? That they may do this to, in other places today? 
or tomorrow? No, I didn't hear that at the moment. I mean, I, I, I have to be honest with you. The, the, there was a lot of yelling and screaming going on. I'm, I, I'm not 100% clear precisely what they were saying. I mean, the, the, the main thing that I heard from them is that Eisenberger hates queers. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I couldn't really quite make out, uh, you know, the taunts and the, the things that they were, they were throwing out. Uh, there was a lot of uh, violent pounding on the door going on. There was a lot of background music. So it was a kind of a chaotic scene for sure. But um, I don't know what they were saying. And I, and I don't know who they are. And I'm not, I'm not prepared to, you know, just because they put signs on my lawn that says Eisenberger hate queers doesn't mean that they were part of the queer community. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm now well adverse. Uh, well versed in the fact that there are groups out there pretending to be, uh, you know, part of uh, other groups that uh, that are using it to uh, to agitate and uh, and create chaos, and that's unfortunate. And that's the, the challenge that the police deal with on a day to day basis: is uh, you know who's doing what for whom. And um, but we'll keep at it. And uh, you know, I appreciate the response of the police. They've they've uh, you know taken thorough statements from all of our neighbors, who are unfortunately quite rattled as well. So a very upsetting thing and a quiet little uh, quiet little uh, court uh, in the east end of Hamilton to have uh, this kind of thing happen for my neighbors. And I apologize to them for that uh, unfortunate uh, circumstance for them. Uh, they're, in, they're in no way part of this at all. And, uh, you know, that shouldn't have to happen to anyone, uh, let alone uh, let alone the neighbors on my street. Well, and, and one of the key elements here that you just touched on is, is we have to have some sort of identification as to who these people are. And, and I don't want to leap right now and say that, you know, these people are representative of the LGBTQ community. That, that First of all, there's no evidence that that's the case. These might just be professional agitators, and we've seen them in the past. Uh, when it came to some of the other confrontational and some of the other uh, very difficult decisions councils have had to make in the past. Uh, I mean, we saw it at the G20 in Toronto a couple of years ago. I mean, these people really go from town to town just looking to stir things up. I don't know yeah. who they were, but the, you do have video evidence, though, that uh, police, I'm, sh- I'm sure, have access to. We have, I, I mean, I, I have pictures that I've shared with the police, and uh, we've looked at those pictures this morning. Some of our staff indicated that they recognized some of those faces from the council meeting the other day. Um, I, I, I'm not going to label, uh, you know, what group they are. It, uh, it really doesn't matter to me at this point. Uh, you know, you're, you're standing on my property and uh, harassing me and my family and my neighbors. Uh, you know, so I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I know enough about the circumstances around all of these events that uh, there are many people pretending to be something other than they are or something that they're, they're, they're saying or, or they are. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't want to get into that. What I want to get into is that this is unacceptable. This is not the kind of behavior that we uh, should should be standing for in our communities. Uh, you know, uh, respectful dialogue and uh, exchange is the only way that uh, folks that, that feel aggrieved are going to get uh, you know some satisfaction and relief. And uh, you know, and that, and that's been working quite frankly for the trans queer LGBTQ community. And uh, and it will continue to work should should they be willing to uh, sit down and continue that dialogue. Uh, unfortunate turn of events, and and again, it's we're going to wait and see and get some information about what's going on, uh, Mr. Mayor. Thank you so much for this, and uh, keep us posted as to as to what goes on in the next little while as we get further information on this. Appreciate the time right, today. I, well, when I when I get a video, it's likely that we'll post it on social media as well. And uh, beyond that, happy Canada Day. Yeah, <laughs> and to you and your family too. Thanks so much, Mr. Thank Mayor. Thank you very much. Uh, That was a replay of the interview that Bill Kelly did this morning on the Bill Kelly Show with Mayor Fred Eisenberger uh, earlier this morning, about 7 o'clock this morning. 
Uh, just as people were getting up, I guess, or still asleep, um, uh, a pile of people uh, came banging uh, on uh, the mayor's door, putting signs on his lawn, uh, playing loud music, screaming, yelling, so on and so forth, uh, disrupting he and his family and the neighborhood and uh, the people around and such. Uh, from what the mayor said, went on for about 15 minutes or so. Uh, appears that there's lots of video on this. No one knows exactly who it was at this point, uh, but they were scream, uh, s- uh, screaming out that uh, the mayor hates uh, queers. Let's bring in Deirdre Pike, Senior Social Planner, Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton, and with us now. Deirdre, uh, thanks for taking the time today. I uh, wish it was better situation here. Uh, your thoughts on what has transpired? Mm. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. I'd you know, my comments may not uh, may just be as a citizen, not necessarily as a senior social planner, but um, uh, that is where I work. Uh, one of the jobs I have, I am uh, just uh, you know, I'm disheartened. I'm I'm uh, just struck by the tragedy of of all of this and how things have uh, gotten to this point, and um, am trying to just be thinking about what could possibly bring us to a uh, to a better point uh, in this community, when we have been watching um, with with uh, just such disturbing, um, you know, just with our hearts just filled with uh, such disturbance of what we've seen in terms of violence and hate, and um, from uh, from the beginning of this, uh, you know, with the um, presence of people outside City Hall for months now, and then uh, the intent at Pride. Um, around the disruption and violence there, and then to, to um, have not been able to bring this to a, a better point in a in a quicker way with some dialogue has been really disturbing. And I think that um, it's time that we uh, that we that we sat down and and had some conversation about this as as um, a community of communities, you know, across the board. Yeah. Do they? Are you worried that your message is getting lost in extremism? Are you worried that other anarchist-type groups are taking your cause and railroading it to just be anarchists? I mean, you know, uh, I'm a middle-aged well, you know, I'm a middle-aged guy. I know I know a few people in the gay community, and um, you know, this is a fight between an extremely small group of people here. These people appear to be extremists. Of course, there's concerns within the community, but most people I know in the community live, work, play, and and, and live normal lives. This is extremism. You know, we've been watching for years now the polarization of our uh, communities brought on by uh, leadership uh, south of the border, uh, you know, uh, the level of discourse, has really uh, degenerated and in all kinds of ways. And, um, you know, when you talk, uh, when you, I think you're referring to the kind of um, work that we've been doing to increase inclusion and equity for 2S and LGBTQ plus um, communities and, uh, you know, really feeling like we've been moving along in the last 20 years. You know, it's 50 years ago today with Stonewall, you know, 50 years ago today. Yeah, but Deirdre, uh, dear, dear, let me interrupt you here. And, and, and again, you know, I'm, you know me, I'm speaking from a naive guy on the outside looking in. But, uh, you know, I think you would agree with me that although not never far enough, we have made great strides. And, and events like this, where anarchists take your message and pretend to speak for your group, I think that sets everything back. 
A- am I incorrect in that, Deirdre? Well, I guess we just can't say your group. Like, I don't have a group. And no, no. We are a very, very broad community of communities. And so, like, I mean, this has been part of the, um, you know, part of probably what has been uh, key in terms of education uh, in our communities is letting people know we can't just talk about the gay community anymore, all of that kind of thing. We've been having these conversations about increasing inclusion and equity through, uh, yeah, um, and move the yardsticks, we thought, in, uh, in beginning stages of all kinds of organizations stepping up and, and creating uh, more inclusive and equitable policies and, and seeing an increase of, of things that are outward symbols of, of uh, movement inside, like, like flags and like uh, putting up rainbows and different organizations. And, and clearly it hasn't been enough. Like, clearly it hasn't been enough. And... Um, uh, and and more action, you know, and uh, quicker would have been better. And now um, we're in this in this situation where we have to say that uh, um, there are. It's almost we have to be of two minds at least of two minds and, and hearts. And that is like being intentional around the two uh, S and LGBTQ inclusion conversation, and recognizing that there is a greater movement of hate and division that is. Um, that's polarizing our uh, communities and society um, for all kinds of marginalized groups. And, um, and so it is time for action from, uh, you know, from all kinds, from our key organizations, from the city, obviously. We need some leadership and some, uh, some, some clear intent to bring people together to have a conversation so we can reduce this kind of polarization and this idea that, you know, one group is taking another group's message. We have to make it one message. And the one message is, um, the one message is increase inclusion and equity and uh, decrease hate. And that, that requires some intent in bringing people together and having these conversations in public engaged um, uh, with some, some Boundaries for good conversation. I didn't see that the other night at council. You know, uh, there are, there's, there are. We do have to be intent about having uh, a place that will provide some good conversation where we can move this along, where people feel that they can contribute, where we feel that um, leaders in our communities are listening, and um, and that's that's the way forward. And uh, I am I am hoping that. After the terrible thing that's happened this morning, it's just—I mean—it's a terrible thing that's happened at the uh, to have to be a, an elected official and and have um, these sorts of uh, things move to to your own home. That's that's not right. And and everybody, I've been seeing a real uprise in social media, uh, recognizing that. Uh, but the other call is okay. That isn't—you know—there's still we have to address. Um, all of this is escalating and and needs some clear statement and clear movement for conversation. So that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm hoping for because uh, this action around hate has to end. And we're all confused about who's, um, how is it that people are allowed to say the things they are? I think we're quite confused and looking for some answers around hate speech in and. Um, and we need to have some good community conversation about that. I, I just don't understand still why, you know, when I was in Dunville that, you know, you can have to, I, I didn't hear it at, at Hamilton Pride this year. I wasn't present for that. But I've been there when, when these hate-filled people come yeah, in with yeah. these messages and stand chest to chest 
you know, yelling things about, uh, you know, whether we're going to hell and all uh. of that kind of crap. And, um, you know, I just, I don't understand why when, when we turn uh, to get some support around that with, um, you know, I, I, that year I turned to the OPP officers and said, please, you know, do something about this uh, violent language. And um, uh, that's, that's not, they aren't able to do it is what, what the answer is. Oh, well, you know, that yeah. they're not making anybody, are they killing anyone? And yeah. I say, yes, they are. I say, I am seeing uh, the, um, the attempt suicide rate in our communities continues to increase. And I'm going to a funeral this afternoon for a teacher of mine who was gay and who died by suicide. Uh, I'm one of my high school teachers. And I know that even all whatever has led to him uh, and, and this life that we'll be celebrating this afternoon is all wrapped up in all of these tense, mm. intense conversations. And Deirdre, uh, we need intentional leadership. That's what I'm looking for. Well said. Deirdre and our condolences. Okay. Good luck this uh, good luck this it afternoon. On. We need All right, to stand together for sure. Thanks Thank you, Deirdre Pike, Senior Social Planner, Social Planning and Research Council of, Cam- of Hamilton, uh, speaking not in that role but in her role in the community. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. Uh, last night, Democrat debate part two. Uh, let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So, uh, first of all, your thoughts on the format of these debates. So many candidates having to divide this up into two nights. Does this, does this give us an accurate representation of what's going on? It, I mean, it, it does simply because it allows you to see who all of these 20 candidates are that are going to be trying to vie for this one position to go up against Donald Trump. Uh, the, the, the format for these debates was a little bit more difficult. The first night was very much a question and answer period for a significant part of the debate, so it didn't really feel like they were kind of getting a chance to, to debate with each other. Last night got a little more heated. There was a little more uh, kind of angst in between some of the candidates on stage, so they blew past what the moderators were trying to do. It actually felt like a debate last night, but there are so many people and so many names and so many kind of different topics among the Democrats that are trying to be spewed out right now as we work through the next couple of months and we start to whittle down these numbers, it'll be a little bit easier to watch, mostly because it'll be over only one night. How did, how did they decide who went when and where and, and divide them all up? Well, so the names were all drawn at random. It just happened to be that on the second night, the kind of biggest names were all kind of placed together. The first night was just kind of some of the more outlying candidates alongside with uh, Elizabeth Warren, who was kind of standing in the middle of that. When it came to how they positioned themselves on stage, it was least in the polling or last in the polling on the far fringes of it. And then as you have more polling and more support, uh, you are put towards the center, which is where Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders were. There's lots of thought that goes into this. Just people don't actually pick up on that. So your thoughts on the performance over the two nights who is standing out who are people talking about well it's it's funny because the first night was a big debate it was the first time they were all on stage and most people have already forgotten about what happened on the first night of that debate but Elizabeth Warren she did uh, kind of stand out uh, amongst everyone else that was on that stage because she's the only one really who's running on a platform of policy and how to implement that policy and what the cost of those policies are going to be so there were uh, you know kind of wide accolades amongst the, the, the pundits in the world that said that Elizabeth Warren walked away 
way as the winner of debate number one. Debate number two last night, uh, most eyes were kind of focused on Kamala Harris, the senator from California, and Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who both used a softer tone or at least some humility while they were speaking to get their points across, whereas uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders were widely panned amongst critics for saying that they were just basically reiterating points that had already been spoken for years on end, if not simply up there to try and defend themselves. Is it unfair to have two different uh, debates like this? Like you're talking about Elizabeth Warren in the group that she was in stood out. Uh, how does that compare her performance to, say, a Biden or 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 Bernie or anyone else that has to fight it out in the larger group or in the yeah, more competitive group? It would have been interesting to see if they had been able to put, you know, 20 of these people all on one stage. It just would have taken a lot longer or people wouldn't have been able to speak as much. But it definitely did create a new dynamic. If you had taken some of those people out last night and put them in the night before's debate, we might not have seen the kind of sparks that were flying over those two nights. But going forward, that's not going to happen. We'll see the July debates basically mimic what we saw last night. But then as we go forward, as these uh, as these candidates start to dwindle down in numbers and we start to see kind of who the front runners are going to be heading into the caucuses next January, that's when we're going to get a better idea as to what these debates look like. This is right now an opportunity for America to look at and say, oh, I didn't know who these people were. Let me give an opportunity to see what they have to say. It's almost like there should be it should be a round robin. So they have a debate off and then the best ones get to go at the end. I mean, uh, it, it is kind of confusing. Will this uh, it will whittle down as we get closer to will it not? It, it absolutely will. There are kind of criteria that need to be put out there. We know that for the July debates, the criteria was just put out today. So you, you have to be polling 2% in five of the right. national polls. You have to have X number of support. You have to have X number of dollars coming in from individual states. So they're putting the criteria out there. But looking at some of the vitals right now, people like Andrew Yang, a political outsider who's a tech leader, a tech industry expert who uh, you know didn't get to speak very much last night, is already doing well enough in polling right now that he could be guaranteeing himself a slot in the July debates in Michigan. So this is going to show that just because you're the presumptive nominee like Joe Biden, there are still people on the fringes of this party who are getting a lot of support. Uh, Any surprises over the course of these two debates? I don't think that there was any surprises. I think that most of what we saw from the camps was what was expected. And that's when we're talking about Joe Biden. He walked into this debate with everybody kind of focused on him, saying he's doing the best in the polls right now. He's doing the best on the Twitter search. He's doing best on a Google search. But when he got up to speak, a lot of the time that he was standing on stage was defending what he did when he was in office with Barack Obama, oftentimes calling it the Obama-Biden administration and not really giving anything as to what he would do to advance going forward. I mean, Joe Biden was simply asked, what are you going to do on day? one and day one he said i'm going to defeat donald trump well that would have already happened by day one so he didn't really have a concrete plan going forward and we found out that his spin room was actually kind of going a little bit nuts because he wasn't acting as if he was prepared for this that was a little bit different than what we were anticipating but outside of that everybody on stage that kind of gave their two cents and had their 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 comments is what we expected to happen there was a lot of pre-planned one-liners out there and uh but but it worked well we can see that you know mayor pete Buttigieg and kamala harris both polled well afterwards uh, after that debate how do the front runners like the bidens and the bernies and such uh when there is that many of them they obviously become then the focal point and and as you mentioned become defensive more than offensive how do they stay on message is that the biggest challenge for them 
That's going to be a challenge for Joe Biden going forward, because in the first night of the debate, a lot of people took on uh, Donald Trump and nobody mentioned Joe Biden. Last night, most of the candidates took on Donald Trump's name, but they also took on the man that was standing at the center, which was Joe Biden. So he did have to go on the offensive. He did have to become defensive. But it was uh, it, it, it was how, you know, how, how the night was basically shaping up to be, because everyone went in assuming that Joe Biden was going to be the one to walk away the winner in that debate. So, you know, watching everybody kind of go after one person is what we're used to see during this debate. We just thought it would be more after Donald Trump. Joe Biden is just really going to have to watch himself going forward if he wants to stay relevant. Has there been any comments about the age of the front runners? Well, there was comments on stage last night about the ages. Yeah. I mean, uh, Pete Buttigieg was the sitting there saying, you know, somebody standing next to me is 40 years older than me. There's a difference in kind of the political view right now. And I think that's what's kind of helping shape the Democratic Party right now. There's a significant number of voters out there that are in that millennial bracket, which now outnumber baby boomers, which are now gearing towards the uh, political ideologies of somebody like uh, Elizabeth Warren, who isn't young, but has younger and progressive ideas, or someone like Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg. Uh, Joe Biden is still sticking to his guns of this is how old Washington works. This is old politics. I'm going to stick to my old tactics. And that might not work for him going forward with a younger crowd. All right. I can't let you go, uh, Reggie, without asking you your thoughts on uh, what's transpired so far as everyone gets ready for the G20, specifically uh, the comments with uh, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin uh, when they were sitting together at a press conference uh, and and someone asked if you were going to t- if, if uh, the president was going to talk to uh, the uh, Vladimir Putin about uh, meddling in the election. And then he leaned over and sort of gave a flib comment saying, don't mess in our elections. How is that resonating? Well, I mean, it's kind of caught everybody off guard to sit there and watch the president make a joke of, you know, telling the the president of, of Russia, don't meddle in our elections when it's already been fully well documented that Russian uh, meddling in the 2016 election did happen and it caused all kinds of turmoil. So to watch the president be flippant on that, not only did it not resonate well with journalists in the room, it kind of gave some additional props to Russia to say, well, look, if the president doesn't really care all that much, maybe we could continue this. There are critics that are widely panning the president right now for for that reaction, as well as for the comments of basically saying, look at all the fake news that's around here, having these conversations with uh, Vladimir Putin of saying, let's get them out, let's take them out, talking to a president who literally takes out journalists in his country. So the president didn't do himself any favors with the media when he was standing in that room with Vladimir Putin. Reggie Giacchini's been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. Make sure you are watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. Happy Friday. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. I love having Aaron Woodrick on. Uh, He is uh, with the Canadian Taxpayers uh, Federation. He is the federal director there. Uh, His latest column has appeared in a lot of newspapers across the country today. Aaron Woodrick, the Trudeau liberals may as well scrap their carbon tax. And he explains the reason for that. Uh, And he is with us now. Aaron, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. Before we get to your article here, your thoughts on uh, the decision that came down earlier today that uh, Doug Ford government unsuccessful in fighting the carbon tax. Yeah, well, obviously, we're disappointed. We had intervened in that case. I was in court myself there for a while. For four days, we sat there and argued over this. Um, but it's another split decision. We saw this in Saskatchewan already. The court's divided. So it's a, it's a, it was a 3-1 or a 4-1, depending how you measure it in the here. It's probably going to go to the Supreme Court. 
Um, so that's going to be the final say. So, you know, anytime you lose a court case, it's disappointing. But, uh, you know, we're going to we're certainly going to wait to see what the Supreme Court has to say. Many said that this was uh, an exercise in futility anyway, that you wouldn't get anywhere. If that's the case, why do this? Is it worth worth the exercise? Yeah, well, I, I would argue that the people who made that claim, uh, that's been proven false. The court has been divided. So we have had justices on both Saskatchewan and Ontario Court of Appeal that have agreed that, uh, that this is not constitutional. It's not a majority. Uh, but there are, there are legal arguments on both sides here. So I think the Supreme Court, uh, as it's meant to do, is going to have the final say on this sometime in the coming year, year and a half. Does this resonate with taxpayers when they pay for it, but they lose? How will they, how will they view this, do you think? Or do they, do they, you know, at least it's the good fight? Well, look, I, I think, uh, you know, using, using legal tools is a last resort for a lot of governments. I, I would suggest the fact that so many governments, I mean, you've got two already and at least two or three more talking about doing it, suggests that there is a high level of, of uh, displeasure amongst a lot of provinces to be doing this. It's not something you see every day. I don't, in fact, in my time, I've never seen an issue that has had five or six provinces challenge the same law in court. So it suggests there's, there's quite a bit of disagreement over this law. And you think this will continue on? It'll go to the Supreme Court and such? Yeah, it is definitely going to be. Saskatchewan has appealed to the Supreme Court. In fact, the court may just roll all of these appeal, all of these separate uh, provincial uh, decisions into one and hear them all at the same time, which would, uh, you know, for a taxpayer advocate, that warms my heart, uh, saving a little money there, making sure we don't duplicate, uh, you know, the work and have the court uh, see all the issues at once. All right, Aaron, I found this uh, latest article of yours fascinating. The headline, the Trudeau Liberals may as well scrap their carbon tax. How did you arrive at this? Yeah, well, I mean, my, my conclusion is actually pretty simple when you think about it. Uh, for three, three to four years now, the Liberals have been telling us that the best way to fight climate change is with a carbon tax. It's the most efficient way. It's the best tool. Uh, you know, they've been insisting this day after day. Uh, but then when a report came out from the PBO saying that for it to actually get us to our Paris targets, it would have to go twice as high as they're planning. It would have to go to $100 a ton. They're planning for it to go to $50 a ton. Uh, Catherine Kennedy, environment minister, said, well, we're not going to go higher than $50 a ton. So they've, they've basically said it's not going any higher than 50 um, So they've basically admitted that they're not going to use this very tool uh, that is the best tool. Now, so, so, is- so the parliamentary budget officer said that this, in order for this to work, this has to be a lot higher. It has to be a crippling tax in order for it to see results. Uh, Catherine McKenna has said she's not going to aim for those targets. Therefore, does it make this tax irrelevant? Yeah, I think it, I think they have they have basically admitted defeat on this. So we have a zombie tax in effect now, Scott. I mean, this is a tax that they are no longer even defending. And so my argument in this piece is they may as well get some benefit out. They may as well make lemonade out of these, this lemon and, and at least give something to their critics who want this tax gone. I, I know that the people who want carbon taxes are not going to be happy about it, but they're not happy anyway because this tax is not high enough to get us where we need to go. So if the Liberals are admitting that they're going to use other tools uh, and that those tools are not as good as the carbon tax, and we know that because they've been insisting on this for years now, um, they may as well get rid of the of the tool they're not willing to defend. I, I see only political upside for them and, and not very much downside. Uh, can the Liberals ride both sides of this fence, convincing people we need a carbon tax yet not... Uh, implementing the prices that are needed, because obviously if that would happen, it would be a crippling tax and they'd probably lose the election. How do they ride both sides of this fence? 
I don't think they can. And I think that's the reason that uh, that Mr. Trudeau and his government ha- don't have a lot of credibility on this. I mean, for, there are people who really don't like the tax. Uh, I guess our group falls into that category and nothing will really please them there. They, they just don't want the tax. But for the people who do support it, they're also not happy, Scott, because they see a government that's not willing to do what it takes. So they've essentially, in trying to compromise, they've ended up pleasing no one. And what we have instead is a tax that is annoying and that people see, but is not heavy enough to actually change behavior enough that we're going to reduce emissions. So it's kind of a lose-lose, uh, both in terms of policy and, frankly, politically for them. How does uh, the Environment Minister Catherine McKenna position herself on this, considering when this had been brought up in the past, she said, well, we'll just raise it. Clearly now she's saying she's not going to. Um, are we to just expect that's the language before the, the election and it will change after? Well, that's what a cynic would probably say, Scott, but I think people are right to be cynical. This is a government that is insisting that this is a climate emergency. They've really positioned themselves as, a, as climate change warriors, and yet they're not willing to increase their own carbon tax. So that suggests to me they are either not serious about hitting the target or, God forbid, they're actually lying and they will raise it after the election, which I think, you know, uh, I, I don't want to ever accuse a politician of lying deliberately, but it seems to me pretty convenient that they suddenly develop this fear uh, of talking about the tax only four months four months before an election comes around. And your point here is not about climate change. It's about the method of which to get to where we need to be, how to yeah, fight it's, it. It's really about them believing their own argument, right? They have been making this argument. Over, and, and I actually, I agreed with the principle, the law of supply and demand is real. When prices go up, people can, can afford less of something. I, I don't dispute any of that. My point all along has been that if you really want to force people to stop driving so much, you have to make it really hurt. And the problem, of course, is making it really hurt is not popular with voters. And so the Liberals are, are kind of stuck because they do not want to have a tax that is actually going to get us where we need to go. Now, that being said, Aaron, we heard the Conservatives, Andrew Scheer, reveal his. Uh, his point was, and I'm being very general here, was instead of having a tax that punishes us for things uh, and, and, and basically makes us change behavior to go, some would say, backwards, um, without having an option there to move us forward. Um, what about Andrew Shear's plan? Is he, He's talked about how uh, it's up to industry to help solve this problem and giving industry incentives to do so. Um, is something like that more effective than a carbon tax? Yeah, no, I mean, a few things about the Conservative plan. I mean, first of all, there's no carbon tax in it. Uh, and our group largely inserted ourselves into this debate because of the tax. I mean, we are a, a group that doesn't like new taxes. Yeah. And so we fought that. So we're happy to see that's not in there. There are still concerns about costs, though. I mean, there are ways uh, that end up being taxes, Scott, even if they're hidden. And there are things in this plan that I don't know if they're taxes or not, but they're definitely costs. And so I don't think uh, Andrew Sears' plan is, is free by any means either. And the last, but the last thing I would say about his plan, and I think it's a, it's a good point in his plan, is that they also talk about things that Canada can do to reduce emissions elsewhere. Now, some people say, well, that's, that's not being fair. We should focus on our own emissions. But remember, this is a global problem. The, what really matters at the end of the day is whether we get global emissions down. It's not about who gets credit or where those emissions are reduced. If total emissions go down, we can, we can stop or, or mitigate climate change. So if doing something like exporting our technology or bringing to our shores industry that's 
more efficient to produce here, in other words, less emissions here than if it was produced somewhere else, that could also help the fight. So I think that's part that needs to be part of the conversation. We need to focus on the total goal and not be so not be so consumed solely with Canada's uh, role in that. Have the Liberals oversold this? There's been a tremendous amount of fear mongering. If we don't do this, the planet, you know, the world is coming to an end, so to speak. Have they painted themselves into a corner uh, by jumping on this tax? Yeah, look, I think the Liberals have had a problem with just not being honest about it. I think it's fine to point out this is a this is a massive problem globally. I think they have oversold Canada's ability to impact it. I think they've also oversold the fact that this is actually going to cost money no matter how we do it. it can, we can find ways that will cost more or less, but it's not free. And Catherine Ricanna running around saying this is a great opportunity and it's going to be good for the economy, it is still a cost. You can try and minimize the cost, but it is a cost. It is not a benefit. And I think that has made people more skeptical every time, for example, her rebates. They are giving a rebate for the carbon tax. That is not going to completely offset the cost. It will, it will help it be less. But her saying, oh, you're going to be better off. I think a lot of people just have a hard time understanding how you're going to collect this tax from everyone and spit it back out. And somehow we're all going to have more money in our pocket. How, how can Catherine McKenna position this now? Obviously, that they're not going to hit the targets that the, uh, that the PBO says they need to hit in order to make a dent. I mean, she's also been using the phrase, pollution isn't free. Um, does this mean it is free? Uh, how, how does she have to change her positioning here? Yeah, I, you know, I just, I don't know how they square the circle. In, in fact, the fact that uh, they are not going to hit the Paris targets on their own plan actually undermines them when they want to attack the Conservatives for their plan. I mean, we've got two parties, neither of whom have a plan that's going to get us to our Paris targets based on their existing plan on paper. And yet they're both arguing that the other has a terrible plan. So really, you know, if you are, if you are truly, this is your number one issue as a voter, your only option really is Elizabeth May, who frankly, you know, even though we would not agree with the, the sort of steps she's willing to take, at least she is honest about the yeah. cost. It would be a massive cost, massive, massive change for all of us, but she's the only one that actually has a plan that would, would actually get us anywhere near a target. Uh, many in Ontario before the uh, the last provincial election, and, and we remember uh, Kathleen wins on uh, energy plans and such. Um, many thought that this was just a cash grab. It was just a case of, of another, you know, scare the bejeebers out of everybody. They know that, that Ontarians or Canadians are sensitive to the environment. You ask them to pay for a good cause, they're, they're, they're going to pay. Uh, has this become, through fear-mongering, a revenue stream for governments? Yeah, I think that politically... Have we lost Aaron? People, oh, sorry, go ahead, Aaron. We're, you're breaking in, uh, going in and out there. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I think a lot of people are just skeptical that they're getting good value for their money as it is. And so they get suspicious when governments introduce you know, new revenue streams. It's sort of like installing a new tap and saying, I'll turn off this other tap and turn on this new tap. But a lot of people are suspicious, Scott, that someday someone's going to come along and turn that other tap back on. And so the only way to protect yourself is to just try and stop the government from installing new taps at all. I, and I feel that the carbon tax debate, a lot of that has been wrapped up in, in, in just a general suspicion that, guess what, in the long run, it's actually going to cost you more money. And the sad part is, in the end, that just makes everybody cynical about climate change. Yeah, look, it's unfortunate that we can't have a, a more substantive discussion about that. It's become very polarized and, frankly, very politicized. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 if I had an easy answer to, to sort of back us out of that debate, I'd be happy to share it. But uh, your guess is as good as mine and how we sort of lowered. Have you heard any response from government on your column on what you've written? 
<laughs> not from the government directly. I mean, some people have said, give me a break. They're not going to do it. Uh, you know, I, I would be surprised if they did it. I'm simply pointing out that there might be some political upside for them in doing something that a lot of people don't expect. But what you have done here, Aaron, whether they do it or not, is you've drawn attention to uh, something. And it'll be interesting to see how they react to it, either by changing it or altering it in some way or, or, or trying to justify it. Well, absolutely. And, you know, in, in a way, for those of us who've been fighting the carbon tax, we already see this as a win. They've essentially conceded defeat. Uh, they're not defending it anymore. They're just leaving what they have out there, but they're, they're not actively using this tool anymore. Um, and so I, I do find it a little bit interesting how they're going to, I look forward to seeing how they're going to progress over the next few months in, in defining this issue. All right. Aaron Woodrick has been with us uh, from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, the Trudeau Liberals may as well scrap their carbon tax is his latest uh, column. You can see it in various publications across uh, the country, or of course, just Google it. You will find it. Aaron, as always, thanks for the time. Great piece. Thanks a lot, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.